on the Gemara on Mem Dalad Amud Aleph. Actually, the Gemara starts um, on Mem Gimel Amud based on the on the page before, deals with the uh, verse and the Torah in, in Acharei Mot. No human being should be in the um, area of the Oel Moed, the Holy of Holies, or the Heichal, uh, even uh, when the Kohen Gadol comes there in order to seek atonement in the Holy Place, until he leaves. And then he can atone there for himself and for his family, that means all the Kohanim, and for the whole community of Israel. Uh, and so th- this requirement that he be alone, that nobody else be there, uh, includes the person who has to stand close by uh, to keep stirring the, the, the blood that is going to be used later on, uh, but he's not allowed to be in that area itself, he's not to be in, allowed to be inside the Hechal. And the Akroni uh, make it clear that the issue here is not that there is a negative commandment that thou shalt not be in the Heichal when the Kohen Gadol is doing his service. Uh, rather, it's a condition of the Avodah. It's a condition of the service. You can, in order to do the service correctly, you have to be there alone. You, the Kohen Gadol, has to be there alone. Nobody be, may be there with you. The Gemara goes on um, and uh, talks about the fact that this requirement that nobody be, be present seems to be made... Uh, specifically, certainly in its primary form, uh, at the time of offering the incense offering, the Ktoris. Where do we learn this? The verse that we've just learned, that he will atone for himself, for his family, and for all of the Jewish people, what temple service is there that the single service on its own atones for himself, for all the Kohanim and for all the people of Israel? This has to be the bringing of the incense offering of the Ktorit, um, because all the other avoiders are specific. There is a particular zrikat adam, there's a particular um, sprinkling, of, sprinkling of the blood, which is for himself, and there's a different one for the Kohanim and a different one for the Jewish people. But the Ktoret is one action, one avoider, which applies to everybody. Does the Ktoret, does this incense offering actually form the function of atonement? We've learned that the Ktoret does atone. As it says after the issue with Korach, and he, the Ketoret was brought and that atoned for the nation. And Tana de learned what does the Ketoret offering, this incense offering, what does it atone for? What specific sins does it atone for? It says the Gemara, Alashon Hara. It, it atones for speaking badly of others. Lashon Hara. Something, a service done in secret, done in privacy, shall come and atone. For an action that's done in in privacy, which is lashon hara. Uh, this gemara is a little bit different from the gemara in erchin daf tezayin, but let's focus on the gemara as we have it here. Uh, so the gemara's assumption or the question, the the amazement, does the ketorit actually atone, uh, is reinforced by a medrash tanhuma that we've got in tzaveh, 
ואמר הקדוש ברוך הוא מכל הכרמל שאתם מקריבים אין חביבים עליי כקטורת. From all the very many sacrifices, the קורבנות that you sacrifice, none is as dear to me, says Hashem, as the sacrifice of the קטורת, the incense uh, offering. Because all of the other sacrifices are brought because Israel needs them, they come to atone for various different sets of sins, but the קטורת the Torah doesn't come to atone for any category of sin. It just comes to bring joy and happiness uh, into the Beit HaMikdash, and, and that's why it's more beloved to me than, than any of the others. So that seems to contradict our Gemara, that the Tanchuma says there's no atonement in the Torah offering. Our Gemara questions, does Torah atone? And the Gemara says, yes, it atones for Lashon Hara. Uh, what, what is that all about and why? So understanding this idea of um, that this is an avoda done in private, almost in secret. Uh, there's a sefer written by the Ramor, Moshe Isselis, um, uh, 15th century, uh, Krakow, uh, co-author of the Shulchan Aruch as we have it today, uh, who wrote a sefer, uh, a sefer called Torah Ta'olah, um, about the, the, the Beis HaMikdash and, and the Avodah. And he writes, among other things there, One of the laws of the Ktorit is that no human being was permitted to be in the Heichal, in the building, or even in the forecourt <coughs> during the time that the Ktorit was being brought. And the reason is obvious, clear. He says a really important principle here, and it's based on the comment that we find in the Chinuch and other places, where the Chinuch says, That our thoughts and feelings are outcomes of our actions. It's not that our actions are expressions of our thoughts and feelings, although there's that as well. But we can moderate and, and we can calibrate our thoughts and feelings by the things we do, because thoughts and feelings follow action, and we can choose action. We can't always choose what we think, and we can't always choose what we feel, but we can choose what we do, and what we do, and the way we do it, and the energy with which we do it, and the passion with which we do it, is going to influence our thoughts and our emotions, our feelings. But the particular feelings and thoughts that have to emanate from this avodah, the avodah of the Ktorit, are so fine, so elevated, so sanctified, that they don't just come automatically because you bring a Ktorit offering. (coughs) Explains the Ramo in the the Torah Ta'olah that for these feelings to be able to reach these levels of sanctity and of personal height, that can only come ki im bodudut. That can only be achieved if one is alone, um, if one is, is separated from people and, uh, and insulated from, from human contact at that particular time. And the idea here is not for, that for permanent insulation from people or isolation from people, um, but there is something really important to understand here, and that is the distraction and adulteration of intent caused by an audience. That when somebody else's presence, in this case, even one single individual is present and observing, their observation is going to impact 
the intention of what you're doing. Of course, we have in, in quantum mechanics that observation can affect the way molecules behave. How much more so will observation affect the way a human being behaves? And so often the way we behave will be to some degree influenced by the audience we have. And only when we do something with no audience at all can we be sure that we're doing it from a pla an, an internal place, from a place of, of self-development, from a place of, of service to Hashem. We live in an age which is very audience-focused. We can't do anything without an audience. If there isn't an audience, we take a photograph, we take a selfie, and we put it out there so that an audience is compelled to have a look at all the things that we're doing because we can't validate our existence without other people being, being the audience. But then there's always the question, where is my self-sufficiency coming from? Where is my self-development coming from? Where am I developing my inner journey of being if everything has to be done for an audience? And it's not only being done for an audience deliberately, it's the subconscious effect as well. And we've often talked about how the Lithuanian approach is not to do anything in public that can be done in private. Some mitzvot have to be done in, in, in a way that is publicly observable, but some of them don't have to be. And there was a big emphasis in Lithuania not to do things in public if they could be done privately where people don't have to see it. Not to make anything of one's religiosity ostentatious. Um, because then you start questioning, am I doing it for the audience or am I doing it for myself? And we uh, have the, the, the well-known stories where there were Hasidish Rabbeim who were so concerned about the way Lithuanian B'nai Torah looked that they sent emissaries to watch them, to observe them. And the emissaries came back and said that when they, when they daven, for example, they looked like non-Jewish people. They just looked like ordinary business people. Uh, but they daven like angels. When they're praying, they pray like angels. Uh, and I've told you about um, Rebellion Lopian saying that when he was a little boy and he saw Rebisrol Salanta from the back and, and from a long distance away, and that it changed his life. And when my father asked him, what was it about Rebisrol Salanta that changed your life? He said the fact that he was dressed like an ordinary businessman. There was nothing externally that made him uh, make it, made it obvious who he was. That it was his, the sense of or the aura of sanctity around him, his, his manner, his demeanor, that's what showed who he was, but not the way he presented himself in terms of, of his outer garments. That, that wasn't what did it. Just a big emphasis in the inner place of being rather than the way we're experienced by our audience. Um, Alex Hornold was, uh, is, is known for, I think, one of the first people, if not the first person, who climbed the sheer rock face of El Capitan in Yosemite in, in California without any ropes or any, any assistance, so just a free climb. And, and that was, was filmed um, in, in Jimmy Chin's famous documentary called Free Solo. Uh, and um, Hornold was, was very concerned and worried about climbing with, a ca with cameras. Um, with people photographing him, even though they stood a long distance away. Uh, and, and he talks about how important it is when you're climbing to be doing it just for the sake of the climb. Um, and, and that if you are being observed, you need to be very sure who you're doing it for, because if you're doing it for the cameras, you will fall and kill yourself. Um, and he was very, very aware of that. And so it is with the Kohen Gadol. Um, the Kohen Gadol is in the Kodesh Kodoshim. If he's doing his Avodah for an audience, even an audience of one, that could wreck the Avodah and could ultimately cause his, his death. Now, there are, of course, times where, where an audience is incredibly valuable. And that's when you're performing. And so it's very important to distinguish, is what I'm doing now a performance or is it self-development? Am, am I practicing the piece of music, in which case I don't want an audience? 
Or am I performing the piece of music, in which case an audience adds energy and elicits the best of what I can give from me? If I'm preparing a shear, then I don't want an audience. If I'm delivering a shear, then you do want to interact with an audience and be very conscious of the audience and of the audience's expectations. The same applies if you're giving a business presentation. When you're preparing it, you want to prepare the material. You want to prepare your thought. You want to do your research without any thought of the audience. Only when you're structuring it for presentation and you're actually delivering it, do you shift from development mode into performance mode. And being able to pivot backwards and forwards from development mode into performance mode and backwards and forwards is a very important capacity in modern life, in, in business, in leadership, and of course in Torah as well. And this was something the Kohen Godel had to really get right. Uh, there were times when his, his work was public and he wore his beautiful clothing and garments and, and the Urim Batumim and everything that went with it. And there was a lot of drama and of course there was interaction with the public, but there were also times when he was wearing the big, big, big day lavan, he was wearing his plain white clothes on Yom Kippur, uh, confronting Hashem privately and personally in a way where there was no audience at all, because this was developmental for him and for Am Yisrael, and it was important that not even to have an audience of one. Uh, so it's important that we know how to escape the audience when we're involved in self-development and how to embrace the audience when we're involved in performance.